Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Monday, February 21st. I'm Desiree Frazier. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, black history and football. Then we talk ways and means and appropriations with Lieutenant Governor Delbert Hoseman. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. This month, we're talking about black history and how it informs American life. We're joined today by Charles Ross, who's a professor at the University of Mississippi. Ross's research focuses on twin pillars of Mississippi's DNA, African-American history and the history of sports. He tells us you can't fully understand one without the other. African-Americans basically uh, in the late 19th, early 20th century, um, had an opportunity to participate uh, in sports like, say, baseball and even uh, football. Uh, basketball comes on comes on later, uh, but even horse racing, like African Americans, thirteen out of the first fourteen first jo- jockeys in the first uh, Kentucky Derby, for example, were, were African American. Uh, and then um, what begins to happen is as segregation becomes the norm in this country uh, in terms of restrooms and schools and movie theaters and everything else, uh, the same thing happens in sport. African-Americans are, are, are basically forced out of baseball, forced out of horse racing, forced out of pro football, uh, and then you have World War II, that takes place, and after World War II, you begin to see um, integration taking place in baseball, in, of course, the Army, uh, and then other sports like football and basketball. Uh, you begin to see African Americans uh, getting an opportunity. So it's a kind of ebb and flow where you look at it beginning of the 20th century, late 19th century. The midway of the 20th century, you began to see uh, change as uh, African-Americans uh, began to push the envelope 
um, as a as a group, as individuals, uh, and have, having some breakthroughs in various sports. Looking at the NFL, we know right now there's a lot of controversy around Brian Flores, the coach who has uh, sued the league because of the lack of black coaches. Have there ever been more than a handful of black coaches in the NFL? No. Uh, There's always been only just a handful uh, of black coaches going all the way back. A lot of people don't know that Fritz Pollard was actually the first kind of head coach in the 1920s, uh, even though he'd been obscured in terms of time. And uh, and so you've had a number of individuals that's trickled in uh, over the last, say, maybe 30-plus years. Art Shell, the first African-American to coach the Raiders in what's called the modern era. But prior to uh, this, this, you know, off season where Brian Flores decided that he'd had enough of this cursory kind of process that the NFL had set up with this Rooney rule and he was going to file this lawsuit. Uh, Mike Tomlin was the only African-American coach prior to him filing this lawsuit. And subsequently uh, the Houston uh, Texans uh, hired a coach, uh, Lovey Smith, and then the Dolphins, his old team, hired a, a, a coach that has multiracial kind of background. But, you know, it's been a, a, a really, really difficult and frustrating um, situation when you look at the National Football League, which is about 70% African-American now. And what you're, the message that is being sent is that, well, you can play on the field, uh, but once your career is over, you really don't have much of an opportunity to lead an NFL franchise. And um, that is something that uh, is really kind of rubbing a lot of coaches the wrong way. You want coaches to go and uh, help to develop players, help to teach them the skills that they may have had as players, um, game plan. uh, And it's almost similar to some of the arguments that were being put forth 30 plus years ago in terms of African Americans having an opportunity to play quarterback. Is there, do you have the actual intellect to lead a football team uh, as a quarterback? And you're almost seeing, the same kind of argument being applied in a way in which uh, that that isn't being put out there. But clearly, uh, you know, I think that there are white owners that don't feel comfortable with the intellect and the ability to lead and game plan and deal with all of the strategy uh, and analytics that come into being an NFL head coach. Uh, and many are now probably not feeling good about whether or not African-Americans can juggle all of those kind of uh, intellectual demands. Let's talk for a few minutes about college sports. And here we go again, football, basketball. Not all, but many blacks do excel. And coaches want to get the best players for their college teams. There's a lot of money riding on it. What has it been like for black college players historically? Well, I think that I, I think that Recently, what has happened is that, and I would say, let's say over the last 15 or 20 years, what you're you're beginning to see, what you've seen in college football is you've seen now, you know, universities and colleges across the country have gotten a a, a clear understanding that in order to be successful, we got to get the best African-American athletes in all positions across the board. 
And so they've done that. And so you look at, for example, a program like the University of Alabama. And if you look at Nick Saban and you look at um, the recruiting at Alabama in terms of the type of players that they're getting at the various positions, including the quarterback position, they clearly are going for the best athlete. They're not trying to set aside a particular position, offensive line, a quarterback, uh, in which a person may be short on skill but have a certain amount of intrinsic or things that aren't necessarily measurable in terms of leadership and these kind of things. They aren't doing that. And so that is being applied all across um, the country. The challenge is, and the problem is, it's just like in the National Football League, uh, when you look at college football, uh, you, 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 don't, you don't see African-Americans being extended these opportunities. And um, here you have, for example, in the Southeastern Conference, you got 14 teams. Uh, and, you know, these teams are primarily now, the, the, the fuel is these African-American players. But, you know, where are the African-American head coaches on these teams? Where's the African-American coach at the University of Mississippi, Mississippi State, Alabama, Auburn, Missouri, Arkansas? I mean, you know, South Carolina. And the players are How bringing in that? a lot of money. <laughs> They're but, bringing in a ton of money. But uh, they aren't and, compensated. And the, well, some some would say they're, they've got a scholarship, and that should be enough. Well, yes, and they, 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 they these players now have been able to also make money now off the field in terms of their likeness and, 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 and with these agreements that they have in terms of gaming and some of these other kind of things. They are able to generate more revenue beyond simply having a scholarship. Yes. However... Um, when you start looking at these coaches' salaries, uh, some of these coaches are making eight, nine million dollars, seven million dollars a year, uh, and again, uh, it's, it's coming down to what is comfortable. Uh, does the University of Alabama feel comfortable having an African American head football coach represented uh, on commercials, stand in front of media, recruits, so on and so forth, boosters, whatever the case may be? And, and that's not and that's not playing itself out. That's, it, it, it's not those opportunities are not playing themselves out uh, to all of these Power Five conferences. And uh, Notre Dame has at least uh, hired an African American head coach uh, in this past off season. So, um, so things have got to change because um, you know for for African American players and African American assistant coaches that are helping to make this system work. You know, you see a lot of hypocrisy, and really, you just have to be absolutely honest. There's institutional racism um, because clearly, if you have the ability to be a position coach or some of the best recruiters on these on these college campuses are African Americans. They can talk to go in people's houses, talk to families, talk to grandmothers and mothers, and convince them to get these kids to come to these schools. But yet, they can't call plays. Yet, they can't lead this team. Yet, they can't do these other kind of things. Uh, and so it's not that they have a shortcoming on intellect. It's simply that the opportunities aren't being extended by, uh, you know, individuals that are athletic directors and chancellors and presidents of these schools. I know we're running out of time. I mean, there's other sports to talk about, but it's just so much to cover and we can't get to it all. Is there one last point that's important to make in the overall looking at 
sports and black history overall? Well, I think that sports have played a major role in extending kind of opportunities and helping to deal with institutional racism in this country. Sports is a very interesting uh, venue in that uh, whether it's uh, African-Americans and white Americans participating on various sports and now breaking down barriers in terms of not coming from very different backgrounds, very different historical experiences, and now coming together on various teams and having uh, the opportunity to communicate with each other and kind of learn and now beginning to maybe even develop friendships and bonds that last a lifetime. Uh, the other uh, other side of it is that when you go to sporting events and when you think about it, you can be at a football game or a basketball game and you could be standing next to or sitting next to somebody that's from an entirely different culture, entirely different race, and yet you can connect with this person for – a couple of hours and you, you're not really seeing this person from a racial prism, but then when you leave out of the stadium, all of that kind of changes. And so that's the one thing that appeals to me about sports is that clearly human beings have this ability to get beyond race and ethnicity. They do it all the time, but they do it very briefly. And if we could figure out a way for people to do this on a full-time basis, um, then we would have a much, much better country and much, much better communities and schools, and, and, and I think we'll work together as, as a group of people in this country to make this country really uh, live up to a lot of the things that are on paper in terms of the laws and the Constitution and so forth. Uh, and so sports gives you this kind of glimpse that this can potentially happen, uh, and hopefully maybe at some point we'll continue to move forward and get closer to making that a, a real reality. Professor Charles Ross with the University of Mississippi, thank you so much. We appreciate your uh, experience in this subject matter and, and sharing it with us. I appreciate the opportunity to speak with you. Coming up, we talk with Lieutenant Governor Delbert Hoseman. This is MPB Think Radio. You're listening to Mississippi Edition. Deep South Dining is the show all about the culture of Southern flavor. From fried chicken and collard greens to shrimp and grits and a glass of sweet tea. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or download our MPB public media app. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. Republican U.S. Senator Roger Wicker of Mississippi says he has tested positive for COVID-19. The 70-year-old added he is fully vaccinated and in good health. He made the announcement Friday and plans to work from home for a few days. Wicker was also diagnosed with the virus in August. About two weeks later, he received a clean bill of health then. This year's legislative session hasn't won it for fireworks thus far. A bill to legalize medical marijuana has already reached the governor's desk and been signed into law. Pieces of legislation aimed at taxes, teacher pay, and critical race theory have gained traction as well. Delbert Hoseman is Mississippi's lieutenant governor. In a conversation from Friday, he tells MPB's Michael Guidry he's pleased with how the session's shaping up. Well, I think we're right where we wanted to be, and that's because my senators all came to work in the summer. 
We had hearings on uh, all kinds of appropriations, on tax issues, on insurance issues, on elections issues. All we we did our hearings during the summer. We did our work then, and started the drafting. So we we were able to meet the deadline uh, easily last Thursday for general bills, and we we were able to meet the appropriations bills uh, just yesterday. So I'm I'm real pleased with it. We're going along and in a fashion that I, I thought was organized by by fact we've been working for a pretty long time on this. Uh, it, it'll get a little hectic here because we've got to look at the, all the House bills. I'm, I'm going through the process now of uh, allocating those out to committees, and then we've got to uh, either accept or change or reject or go to conference. All of those things will be going on in the last month. Are you still in the middle of doing some appropriations and some finance bills? The House has kind of fast-tracked their tax plan and pen passed it, even though mm-hmm. it, is, it, is a, it is a finance bill. The Senate has... You've outlined your plan, but when can we expect to see legislation that comes out of committee on the floor? It'll probably come out either today or on Monday or Tuesday. So the bill's been drafted. I've seen Senator Harkins passing several times in the last couple of days. I think he's got it in final form. So uh, it'll probably come out on Monday or Tuesday. Part of that, you know, you mentioned things that might go to conference. there the House passed a similar tax plan than the one they passed this year. Mm-hmm. Uh, it did not get taken up in the Senate. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and now this year you, you're proposing your own plan. You know, these bills seem like you know, they might be on a collision course to conference. What concessions are, are, are you willing to make as you look at what the House has been trying to do for the last two years? Well, we, we spent a lot of time on our bill, uh, and I think we did a more measured approach. For example, the Senate didn't want to raise anybody's taxes, and of course the the House bill raised taxes seven hundred and something million dollars a year, so we didn't want to do that in the, in there. We thought it was important to have an immediate uh, reduction in the grocery tax because of the inflation and what parents are doing right now. the The House plan had some kind of structured downward, and ours went directly to five percent. We thought it was important to give some money back, so uh, we're giving one hundred and thirty million dollars back to taxpayers. Um, so we thought that was important. If we've got an excess, it was their money to start with. So we thought it was important to do that. The House plan did not do, do that. And then we wanted to eliminate the income tax in a gradual basis. Uh, we, em- we eliminate the 4% bracket, 4321, and um, the, I thought that was really important. Um, we are having a record year. We had a record year last year. I've been around long enough, and I think everybody that's old enough to remember Jimmy Carter recognizes that this probably won't continue, uh, particularly if the Republicans take over the House of Representatives, which apparently they're going to do. This part about just sending billions of dollars down here is going to stop. When that stops, we have to have make sure that our that the production from our taxpayers, the money they give to us, is sufficient to do roads, bridges, education, and the other things. So we're very leery of putting ourselves in a position that we would have a significant decrease off three, four, five years from now. Uh, the House plan, the state economists sent us, shows that we'd have significant deficits during those years. So we want to we want to do like everybody else. Uh, we want to gradually reduce taxes, just like Governor um, Reeves did, just like Speaker Gunn did over the last few years. They reduced the 3% rate, and they reduced the franchise tax over a period of years. We'd like to reduce the income tax over a period of years and give their people their money back, but also make sure that we give our teacher pay raise, that we educate our kid, kids, and that um, 
there was something that started with Governor Barber and Governor Bryant and Governor Reasonow and, and Speaker Gunn at the time is, you know, you don't use one-time money for recurring expenses. If there was ever one-time money in Mississippi, this is it. <laughs> we'll never have any money like this again. And I'm very leery of, of making an assumption that it's always going to be like this. So uh, that may be a little bit longer discussion, but it's a complicated issue, and we certainly want to consider the House plan. We're doing that now. Hopefully they'll consider our plan, and we'll go through the process. With both chambers having a, a, a Republican supermajority, there are often lots of times where there's consensus between the two chambers, but the House has been pretty aggressive in some of its messaging about its plan. What do you think about that? Well, they get to do that, man. They're elected by people. Uh, every House member is elected by 25,000 people, and every Senate member is elected by 50,000 people. So they're the voice of the people. And uh, within the House, of course, there'll be differences uh, like everything else. But... You know, everybody has their way of convincing people that their their assumptions are correct. I rely more on the numbers. You mentioned the one-time money, and uh, you've talked a lot about investing in generational change, especially when it comes to infrastructure um, at municipal and local levels. Where are we on that? We have put aside $750 million to match local contributions, and I thought that was just critical. Uh, We want to match what cities and counties and and others, and rural water actually, too, is part of that, put up to to make things, uh, to fix old pipes and to get uh, sewer lagoons up to speed and to really dictate the growth of their communities. That's what this is doing. When they they run their new water wells and all that other thing, that's where people are going to go. And the same with broadband. We're devoting – we devoted $75 a couple of years ago. We'll probably spend – somewhere around $500 million on my own broadband in the next year or two. So we're starting a broadband commission to do that, and uh, that's also going to dictate growth in Mississippi, and it keeps pe- keeps our young people here and allows us to be competitive. So, yeah, you're right. I, I have a longer-term view of these things. I, there's so many people that deserve more compensation, our firefighters, our policemen, everybody. But that's such a transitory thing. It needs to be done in the normal course of our economic uh, abilities that we've got right now. And this money needs to be transformational. Delbert Hoseman is Mississippi's lieutenant governor. We'll hear more from him on tomorrow's show. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Stick around for a full morning of Mississippi Radio. Coming up at 9, it's Deep South Dining. Then at 10, it's Now You're Talking with Marshall Ramsey. And at 11, don't miss Southern Remedy. Find past installments of this and other Think Radio shows online at mpbonline.org. I'm Desiree Frazier. See you tomorrow morning at 8.30 for the next Mississippi edition only on MPB Think Radio. Have a good day. Stay dry.